You just had read to you two passages from the New Testament, Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. I opened the second assembly from Titus chapter 3. There are three clear passages about submission to civil authority in the New Testament, even though we just found in our previous service that there were no such statements about the Sabbath. So if you want to pick what's more important, it's your obedience to civil government and the authority that springs from that than any seventh day that came out of the law of Moses. Let's keep our priorities where God places them by his word. In Jude, we have learned that the epistle was written because it was needful for Jude to exhort his audience to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. That faith is not an opinion. That faith is not a preference. We are at war against all lies and heresies against the truth of the gospel. And we want to fight that war diligently and faithfully as the Lord has called us. So we want to earnestly contend for that once delivered faith and not let it be lost. But the apostle immediately went on to point out that there were men who had been ordained before of old to the condemnation of God who turned the grace of God into lasciviousness. That's verse 4. Then he gave three examples of large categories of people that God judged for departing from the truth. Verse 5, the nation that came out of Egypt, the nation of Israel that would not take the land of Canaan, God overthrew them in the wilderness. Verse 6, the angels that kept not their first estate. Verse 7, Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities of the plain. Then he returns to the character of these men. Jude, for half of the epistle, is describing the character of heretics. The character of these false brethren from verse 4. And verses 8 through 13 are one of those sections where we have character described. And this is where we left off two weeks ago in verse 8. Do you remember these words? Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh. Do you remember that in comparison to Sodom, these men did not have sexual temperance But they lived on filthy dreaming, and they defiled the flesh with all sorts of sexual sins. That is a tendency toward false doctrine, and especially the false doctrine of turning the grace of God into lasciviousness, which is unbridled lust, especially in sexual matters. So that's where we were two weeks ago in the first part of verse 8. We want to take up after the words... These filthy dreamers defile the flesh. Likewise also, these false teachers had much in common with the men of Sodom. But then it goes further and it gives us some more character traits. And brethren, we want to learn these character traits for two reasons. One, we want to be able to recognize men that are belly worshipers and are not true followers of God. And two, we want to make sure that we eradicate and rip every aspect of these sins out of our own lives. That's the two reasons we want to learn what we're about to read. Likewise also, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally, as brute beasts, 
In those things, they corrupt themselves. We will stop right there. It goes on to give three specific illustrations of Cain, Balaam, and Korah from the Old Testament, and then describes the disgrace they are in the church of Jesus Christ by being spots in their churches. But let's go back and grab despised dominion, speak evil of dignities. What in the world is this about Michael the archangel with the devil? And why do these men argue and fight against authority so blatantly? These false teachers and a character trait that goes with them is to resent authority. Despising dominion. Let's turn to Second Peter chapter 2 so that we can get the words that are there in this commentary to Jude so I don't have to keep turning you to it. Let's read this another three verses that provide us a commentary. There are some things similar and there are some things different. Remember in the three categories of men, in Jude, it was the nation that came out of Egypt, it was the angels, and it was Sodom and Gomorrah. Here in Second Peter chapter 2, it takes out the nation of Israel and sticks in the generation of Noah's day. So there's some things similar, some things different. We can learn from that. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 10. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. That's filthy dreamers that defile the flesh. Just different wording. Chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Presumptuous are they. Self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. But these, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. The Lord gave us a little commentary in Second Peter 2 for the book of Jude, and the beginning of the book of Jude for a little commentary in Second Peter chapter 2. But notice we have sexual sins and despising government wrapped together in these evil character traits of these men that are false prophets and teachers that would come into the churches of Jesus Christ, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. So, two weeks ago I warned you that we need to fight with diligence and vigilance in our homes, in our hearts, in our marriages, in our church, against sexual compromise. But now we want to take up, for the few minutes that we have, compromise of authority and submission to it. And by opening up the Word of God, we will understand that not just civil government is under consideration, but all the authority that stems and flows down from it. We want to look at all aspects of authority. This is something that we've taught on before, but it's something that we want to learn We want to hate violations of it, and we want to love and cheerfully submit to the authorities that God has put in our lives. Back to Jude. The verse there says, despise dominion. Dominion is a pretty powerful word. The power or right of governing and controlling, sovereign authority, lordship, sovereignty. Despise dominion. Men don't like to be controlled. They don't like a sovereign over them that can tell them what they have to do, when they need to do it, how they need to do it. We don't like to be told all those things in the flesh. But God wants his children in this world to submit to civil government. We will probably not go back to it, but Romans 13 was powerful. Romans 13 says, let every soul 
Let every soul be subject unto the higher power. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. What's the name of that epistle? The Romans. Where did those Christians live? In Rome. Who was their civil government? Caesar and the Roman government. Pagan. The passage isn't about their religion. God doesn't care about their religion. Their religion doesn't matter. It's in civil matters. The pagan government is not going to reward you when you do well religiously. The pagan government is going to reward you when you do well civilly. The pagan government is not going to punish you when you do poorly religiously. But the pagan government will punish you when you do poorly civilly. And that's why it says he's the minister of God. Caesar was God's minister. Caesar was God's servant. Like Nebuchadnezzar was. Like Cyrus was. God's anointed. God picked those men. They weren't killed on motorcycles in high school, but they graduated at the top of their class, made it through their military exercises, were promoted, had men being assassinated around them, and made it all the way to the government of Rome by the sovereignty of God. They were in position, and they held positions, both of which are ordained by God. Not only the office, but the man in the office, and then whether the man in the office is having a bad day or not is all under the government of a holy God. And we submit to that and we trust that. And that is true of all spheres of authority. When your husband is having a bad day, wives, that doesn't mean you can take the privilege of disobeying him. God created the office of husband. God put the man that is in the office of husband over you. And God allowed him to have a bad day. Now, he's going to be in trouble for having a bad day if he doesn't have good cause for it. But you still have to submit to him. And that's when he's a froward husband. Just like when we work for a man that's a froward boss. God created the office of master. He put the master in there, whether it's Mr. Potiphar or Pharaoh, or whoever your master may be. And he can arrange circumstances for him to have a bad day. And you may say to me, but my boss has bad months. Well, the Lord can arrange that too. And we still submit because God is in charge of all those things. Wasn't Romans 13 powerful? Romans 13 sounds so extreme and so absolute that you want to scratch and claw for where are its limitations. He is the minister of God. When it says that you're supposed to pay taxes because he attends continually, you should underline the word continually in that verse because what it means is he doesn't have a chance to go out and make a buck. He's got to be governing all the time, so we got to pay him to take care of that. Right. Romans 13 it was the Roman government. As bad as you may think our government is, it's not as bad as the Roman government. Isn't it wonderful that Paul would write that in Romans, where we can read a little bit about the Roman government and realize there were a lot of problems there for a Christian. But Christians were to submit. What a lesson for us. First right. Peter chapter 2. Did it say about the very same thing? Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. For the Lord's sake. Back in Romans 13, it gave two reasons why you ought to submit to Caesar. First one was starts with W. Wrath. Second one. Conscience. Wrath, because he can cut your legs off with his sword. He doesn't bear it in vain. And he usually doesn't waste time with your legs. He usually cuts your head off. 
So the first reason we obey government is for wrath. If the king gets mad, there's power there, which Charlie read. Where the word of a king is, there is power. You don't like to do it my way? I'll help you find out whether there's life after death or not. That's the first reason we obey. That's the traffic ticket. We drive the speed limit or close to it because we don't want to suffer the wrath of Mr. Crosby. Aren't you aware that they've raised speeding fines in Greenville County and this is going to be $250? You know, that's wrath. And we also do it for conscience. Conscience toward God. We obey civil government because we recognize God made the office, God put the man in the office, and God caused that officer to have a bad day. He could have given me a warning, but he didn't. And God arranges all of that. And so we learn to submit to civil authority. And we submit for it for two reasons. We don't want to be punished, and we want to please God by living in such a way that we shut the mouths of the ignorant by our obedience to government. We honor the king. As we go further, we're going to run into Korah. Korah didn't want to submit to Moses' authority. It's there in verse 11, but we're not going to deal with that right now. We'll deal with that later. False doctrine. False doctrine, including the corruption of God's grace, often runs, according to this passage, and according to 2 Peter 2, with rebellion against civil authority. So if we want to walk pure before God, and if we want to be holy and walk with Him in His path, in His way, and love His truth... And walk in his truth that we read this morning from Psalm 8611. We want to learn to hate all civil rebellion. We want to love civil submission. We want to speak honorably of our rulers. We do not want to speak evil of dignities. We don't want to curse them. We don't want to think wicked thoughts in our hearts about them. We want to say yes sir and no sir. We want to call Mr. Policeman with the most respectful terms that we can. We don't want to just call him fuzz. He's not a fuzz. He's a policeman. We don't want to criticize cops. He's our policeman. He's our sheriff. He's our trooper. We want to honor him. Yes, sir. Anything you want, sir. Can I give you a tip, sir? No, we don't say that either. But we want to be respectful because that's not respectful. Laid out very clearly for us. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates. Put them in mind. Because it was hard to be a Christian and be persecuted by the civil government in religious matters and obey in every civil matter. Do you know what you would want to do if you were being punished for religious matters? You'd want to cheat in civil matters, and the Lord doesn't allow it. For those here in this little audience that want to walk with God in His way, His path, and His truth, This is what he's teaching us today from Jude. He wants us to submit to authority, especially civil authority. Look at 1 Samuel 8. 1 Samuel 8. Let's let's run to some different places in our Bibles and be reminded with the precious word of God. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This is how we learn what God wants for our lives. We've just had it read to us from Ecclesiastes 8, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, 2 Peter 2, and the book of Jude, and Titus 3, 1. We've already covered those passages about obeying civil government. And here we are at 1 Samuel 8, verse 6. Israel is demanding a king. They no longer want to submit to their judge named Samuel. Verse 
6 of 1 Samuel 8, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Do you remember Romans 13 that was read to you? The powers that be are ordained of God. What was the power that was? Samuel was the power. He was a judge. And they said, we don't want the judge that we have named Samuel. We want a king like the nations around us. Samuel was hurt. He had been a good judge. And they admitted he was a good judge. And he called them to record on his last day in office that he had been a good judge. And swore them to it. But they wanted a king. And God said, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. It's a higher authority than that. They've rejected me. They've rejected God by not submitting to the authority that they had. Even though they were looking for a change in government. A change in government is not something Christians look for. If a change in government occurs and it's to our benefit, we thank God. If a change in government occurs and it's not to our benefit, we pray to God. But we trust God in both cases. He makes the changes in government, not us. Look at chapter 10. We'll get some of the same words. Samuel has called the people together, 1 Samuel 10 and verse 18. And he said to the children of Israel, 1 Samuel 10, 18, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all kingdoms and of them that oppressed you. And ye have this day rejected your God, who himself saved you out of all your adversities and your tribulations. And ye have said unto him, Nay, but set a king over us. God had delivered them without a king. But now they wanted a king, and it was offensive to God, because he had delivered them without a king. He said, well, what went wrong the way that I did things? You didn't even have to have an army to fight the Egyptians. I just drowned them all in the Red Sea. That's the good life. But they were fighting against God. We want to remember and submit to the fact that authority is from God. Look at First Kings, I mean First Samuel, we're still in First Samuel, back to chapter 10. First Samuel chapter 10 and verse 27. They now have a king. His name is Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. Verse 26, and Saul also went home to Gibeah, and there went with him a band of men whose hearts God had touched. It would take us eight to twelve sermons to cover the, the, the Bible principles of authority which have been preached before many, many years ago. But when you get a verse like this, you notice that even the handlers that were around King Saul were prepared by God for King Saul. Because you can go through the Bible and find the verses like this and realize God's involvement in the civil governments of the world is extensive. You can find in Daniel chapter 10 that there are evil angels behind pagan governments, but there are righteous angels that come and do battle with them in the spiritual realm that determine how successful a nation is ever going to be in the civil or military realm. Here in verse 26 it says, Whose hearts God had touched. God had prepared some men to be loyal helpers, handlers, and counselors to King Saul. But we want to go to verse 27. But the children of Belial, children of the devil, said, How shall this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no presents. But he held his peace. 
We often pick on King Saul. Let's give him a little credit right here for some mercy. He could have spoken to the men of verse 26 to go kill the men of verse 27, but he held his peace. And if you were to keep reading, you would find out that after they had their first great victory, the good guys wanted to kill the bad guys, and he said, the Lord's given us a great victory, let's just all celebrate. I want to say something good for King Saul. But I want you to see the difference in character. God changed some hearts to be faithful and loyal to Saul, but what does he call those that, that ask the question, how can this man save us? That's a railing question. That is a disrespectful question. That is speaking evil of dignities. They're called sons of Belial. They're sons of the devil. They're the devil incarnate. They're wicked men, is what the Bible wants us to know about them. And they despised him. This is comparing words with words in the Bible. To despise dominion is being done right here by these men who mocked King Saul. How are you going to be able to help us? You're an ass herder. Remember where we found you? You were, you were lost. You were trying to find your father's lost asses. How are you going to be able to save us? We can say similar things right now about the president we have. We could if we were sons of Belial. But we cannot think those things, nor say them, nor act upon them. We must be respectful. He is the commander in chief of our nation. He is our president. He is our highest authority in this land. And we must submit to him. We must do it cheerfully. And we must give honor where honor is due and pay our taxes and give tribute where tribute is due. He's continually working on this project, as Romans chapter 13 tells us, and we want to learn to submit cheerfully. I am speaking to you something that is as hard for me as it is for you, but it's what the Bible teaches. And so when we start out with Psalm 86:11, teach me thy way, O Lord, and I will walk in thy truth. He's teaching us his way and his truth. Amen. And so we submit to it. God is right. President Barack Obama is not going to do anything God doesn't allow him to do. And everything he does accomplish that is good, God's going to arrange it for us. Let's trust the God of heaven that put, that created the office, put him in the office, and determine whether, determines whether he's having a good or a bad day. A simple rule to follow in measuring doctrine. One of the first things you can ask. Remember our cult cheat sheet? From Wednesday nights, we want some little short things to look at very quickly to determine if something is right or wrong. One is, how do they speak of authority? How do they speak about civil government? What do they say about parents, husbands, masters, pastors? Do we have a Korah that wants to say to Moses, you take too much upon you, Moses. The rest of the congregation's holy too. Why can't we do your job? That's a Korah. Then there's these men against civil government. Then there's odious women in the book of Proverbs that speak against their husbands. Then there's disobedient children, which carnal Christianity allows and fosters, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We want to look at all of them. We want to look, we want to look up the breadth of Scripture and honor all that deserve honor. Does the Bible tell us to honor parents? Parents are not the primary focus of 2 Peter 2, 10 through 12 and Jude 1, 8 through 10. The primary focus is civil government. It's clear there. But parents are authority and their dominion. And they should be honored and obeyed cheerfully. And honor 
is much greater than obedience. When you obey your parents, they give you instructions to do something, and you go do it the way they tell you to do it. But honor is higher than that. Honor is loving them and esteeming them and doing special things for them because you are treating them special for the office they hold over you. It's affection. It's titles of praise. It's, it's service without being asked. It's honoring them. It's giving them a treat. It's writing them a note. It's thanking them for all they've paid for you to be alive at this moment. Because if they hadn't paid, you'd be dead. If they hadn't fed, you'd be hungry. If they hadn't clothed, you'd be naked. And so you thank them. You honor them. You treat them special. You rise up. You hug. You embrace. You love them. When they ask you what you're thinking, you speak to them. Was it Monday of this week? I think it was the 29th. Monday of this week when we had a proverb about passive rebellion. There's active rebellion. You know where a child takes a club and hits his parents. There's active rebellion where a child curses his parents to his face. But there's passive rebellion when you go hide in your bedroom. And when your parents call you out at the supper table and ask what you're thinking about, nothing. Nothing. That's rebellion. If you were to honor that parent, you would immediately cough up something, even if you don't have any wires connected upstairs. You'd make up something. If you don't have any thoughts, I'm sorry for you. But you probably have a whole lot of them. And you should open them up to your parents. Well, they're going to criticize what I'm thinking. What does that have to do with anything? They asked what you're thinking. They have a right to know. Wives, the Bible says to reverence your... Now, let's not leave children quite yet. Now, you know the verse well, don't you? Proverbs 30 and verse 17. The eye that mocketh his father and his mother and refuseth to obey his father and his mother. What's the Lord going to do to the eyeballs that roll up into a head against a parent? He'll pluck them out and feed them to the ravens of the valley, and the eagles shall come and eat them. That's how the Lord describes it. An eagle has a very nasty beak and talons. Very nasty. And when they get your eyes out, they tend to cause them to bleed. They tend to mess things up. If you ever saw an eagle eating an eyeball, have you ever seen it ripping a rabbit apart? But that's ripping your eyeballs out. And that's how we ought to... That's how we ought to think about children that roll their eyes at their parents and go in their room and slam the door or go in the room and don't slam the door. And they sit in there and turn on their rock and roll music that encourages them to be rebellious against their parents. Lord, save us from despising dominion. Where did the office come from? The office of parent. God made it. God made the office of father. God made the office of mother so that they can band together and outnumber you at all times. Yes. And he's always on the side of parents. Be sure your sin will find you out. It will find you out. Mommy is going to know what you did. And you say, well, I got away with something, but let me tell you about all the things you didn't get away with. God is on the side of parents. Who made the office? God did. Who put the particular parents in that office that you have or that you had? God made that choice. What about the days that they made choices that affected you? Your, a father took a different job in a different city, caused you to lose your friends and have to move out of that community, quit that school and start a new school in a new community. It cost you. God arranged that. There's nothing that God didn't arrange in all the details of the office, 
the man and his choices. So we submit. When do we break a rule? When do we break authority or when do we resist authority? Only when we are being forced to do something contrary, expressly contrary to the word of God. And if we're confused, we go with authority. Only when we're not confused and there's overwhelming evidence that we're being asked to do something contrary to God's word would we disobey a parent, a husband, or the government, or any other position of authority. This is the way of God, and this is what he wants us to learn. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers. So I'm seeking to do that. Wives that are reverence their husbands. Ephesians 5.33 Sarah called Abraham Lord and set forth an example of how a wife should reverence her husband. She shouldn't joke about her husband. She shouldn't be demeaning to her husband. She shouldn't criticize her husband. She should reverence her husband. This is what the Bible teaches. And not to despise dominion. If your husband tells you to do something that you don't want to do, then you have the opportunity to show yourself a virtuous woman. Because until he asks you to do something you don't want to do, you don't have the opportunity. He's got to ask you and tell you something you don't want before you can show true submission and true reverence. It's when your husband has some really nasty habits and you reverence him anyway that shows real reverence. It's when you're with others that are running down their wives, but you'll, running down their husbands, but you'll refuse to do it that you reverence your husband. You lift him up and you exalt him even though you know all the faults, the weaknesses, the sins, and the disgusting habits that he has. And I say that just to comfort you that we all know that about your husband. Because all husbands are the same way to varying degrees. And it's our job as husbands to do a little bit better. But wives are to reverence their husbands. We are supposed to obey masters, not answering again, pleasing them well in all things. We don't despise dominion. You want to be your own boss? Whenever I hear somebody that wants to be their own boss, I want to find out why they want to be their own boss. Because being your own boss is not some great privilege. Being your boss just brings a whole lot more responsibility and a higher risk of making less. There are some that make more, but more make less than submitting to another boss and working hard for him. In the first three years of operation, 90% of all small businesses go out of business. Do you know what that means? It means that most men who want to work for themselves make less than if they'd have worked for someone else. And let him take all the responsibility. And all you have to do is cash your check every two weeks. What a terrible ordeal. No risk of capital or other problems. He'll take care of it for you. But do you please him well in all things? Do you not answer again? Do you work diligently? Do you serve him as unto the Lord? Do you make that new Angus burger as unto the Lord, Mark? I know they've got a new burger at McDonald's, a high-end burger. Now you've got to pay four bucks for a great burger from McDonald's. It's a half-pounder. One-third? It's one-third. Forgive me. Do you make it just the way they tell you to make it, or do you think you've got a better idea? You know, we've all got better ideas, but you want to do it just the way the Lord said. And just the way the boss said, because you want to do it as unto the Lord, with singleness of heart. The Bible is so clear in Ephesians chapter 6 and in Colossians chapter 3 of how we're to serve those that we're under. And this is how we show our respect of the authority that God created. The Bible says that ministers ought to be esteemed 
very highly in love for their work's sake because they have a difficult job. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13. Hebrews 13 says, Submit yourselves to those that have the rule over you who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow. Those are verses in the Bible. We want to remember those verses. We want to put them into practice. Yielding is a good thing. Yielding is not compromise when it comes to authority, and they've told you to do something you don't want to do. Yielding becomes a good thing. Look at Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 15. This is God's way for us to live in this world. We obey civil government. We obey the other four spheres of authority that God has put in our lives. Teach me thy way, O Lord, I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Is there part of you that doesn't like to do what I'm talking about? Is there part of you that says, you know, that's right. And if I was in authority, I'd want somebody preaching to everybody in authority under me, just like he's preaching to me right now. But why don't I like what he's preaching to me right now? That's because we've got the flesh and the spirit. And I'm willing to do your dirty work for you. So all you husbands, I just told your wives to reverence you. All you wives, I just reminded you that we all know that your husband's got some disgusting habits. But we can still submit. We can still submit as wives and we can still reverence as wives. And we can still go to the job. There may be a man over you who's never even done your job, doesn't know anything about it, but he's going to tell you how to do it. That hurts. It's very hard to handle that. But you can do it. And you must do it if we're going to fulfill this warning here in this passage. Look at Proverbs 25 and verse 15. It says, By long forbearing is a prince persuaded, and a soft tongue breaketh the bone. That is not the way we like to get our way. We like to get our way by telling the prince that he's wrong and using a baseball bat instead of a soft tongue. But notice the warning here. By long forbearing, a prince is persuaded. Putting up with the way he does it over and over and asking for redress when he gives you the privilege. By long forbearing is a prince persuaded. If he comes and asks you respect and allows you a respectful statement to him, then tell him that things could be done a little differently, sir. If you were to think so, sir, with your permission, sir, we might be able to try this, sir. And you put up with him walking away from you and ordering it done the same way tomorrow and the same way the next day. But by long forbearing, a prince is persuaded and a soft tongue breaketh the bone. You don't break the bone with a baseball bat. You break the bone with a soft tongue. Gentle, soft, respectful, obedient answers. Answers that give honor. The Lord blesses those. They bear fruit. The Bible says a soft answer turneth away wrath. You have someone over you in authority, and they're angry at you. A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. If you start throwing out some railing accusations against your boss, he's going to want to fight back, and guess what? He's got the power. He can fire you. He can get rid of you. He can, he can demote you. So for wrath and for conscience sake, we submit, and the Lord tells us how to submit. In Ecclesiastes 10.4, it says, Not even to leave your place for yielding can pacify great offenses. Even if you've done something horribly wrong, if you'll be submissive and respectful, it can pacify great offenses. It can cause a ruler to be over you to overlook what you have done against them. A few pages to the right is Ecclesiastes chapter 10 that warns us about speaking evil of dignities. 
We live in a rebellious generation. Children don't obey their parents. Wives don't submit to their husbands. Employees don't honor their masters like they should. There's demonstrations in the street against our government. Too bad we didn't have Nebuchadnezzar. The price of fertilizer for the Iowa farmers would go down because there'd be a greater supply of it. They just call the army in and get rid of them. What are their demonstrators allowed in the street for? You know, but what? We'll take it. We'll take it because they allow demonstrators in the street. They allow this church to exist. They both exist pretty much by the same rules. Freedom of speech. And even though we understand that one is against God, we'll take the privilege of the one that's granted us. In Ecclesiastes chapter 10, let's take just a couple of minutes on not speaking evil of dignities. Do you watch your mouth? How many jokes do you tell about our president? How many jokes do you tell about your father? How many jokes do you tell about husbands, pastors, or masters? Do you participate in jokes about your boss on the job with other employees? Did you notice that as we read through several of those passages, it said that trouble and damnation is going to come to you if you despise dominion? If you want a peace-free life, then you will learn to honor God by honoring God's representative in the spheres of authority in your life. God will bless your life. You will not lose. You do not need to protect yourself by standing up for your rights against somebody in authority over you. You need to submit to that person over you and let God stand up for your rights. And he does a whole lot better job of it than we do. In Ecclesiastes 10.20, we learned the verse well when we went through the book of Ecclesiastes a few months ago. It tells us, curse not the king. No, not in thy thought. Don't you even think something disrespectful and derogatory about our president, even in your thoughts? And curse not the rich in thy bedchamber. Don't you rail on landlords, bosses, the directors of your company, your boss's boss, supervisors that you don't like. Do not rail on them. Do not curse them. Not even in your bedroom. Because the warning here is a bird of the air shall carry the voice, and that which hath wings shall tell the matter. And Solomon's warning here is primarily wrath, meaning it's going to get out and the one in authority is going to find out about it and you're going to be in trouble. It's primarily wrath. But I want to warn you that God has eyes in every place and ears in every place, beholding and hearing the evil and the good, and he will punish you supernaturally for you rebelling against his authority. This verse is pervasive. It goes right down into our thoughts. Curse not the king. You may read something he's done that you dislike. Curse not the king. You may have some boss or supervisor over you or a landlord or some other rich and successful person. It could be almost anyone. It could be a doctor. Somebody that you've put yourself under the authority of. If you go to a hospital and you put yourself under the authority of the doctors, you give honor to that doctor. Right. You are the one that submitted to him by walking in the door. Give honor. Don't curse them. Don't go back and hide in your bedroom and curse them. Don't curse them in your thoughts. God hears it and it's going to get out and it's going to cost you. Look at Exodus chapter 22. Exodus chapter 22. This is God's religion. This is the religion of the New Testament. Even though we're appealing to the Old Testament for some of the statements. This was taught in Titus 3.1. This was taught in Romans 13. This was taught in 1 Peter 2. This was taught in 2 Peter 2. This was taught in Jude. 
This is part of Christianity. We want to be very good at it. We want our children to grow up seeing that we're very good at it. If your children grow up and hear you criticizing and railing on government, why are you surprised, and I hope you wouldn't be, that your children are going to criticize and rail on you when they're teenagers? If you want your children to grow up and submit to you and honor you and love you and appreciate you and put up with your bad decisions, then you're going to love and appreciate and be thankful and cheerful and put up with the bad decisions of those that are over you. What goes around comes around. In the Bible, that is called, Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. This is the way of God. Look at Exodus 22, verse 28. It says, Thou shalt not revile the gods, nor curse the ruler of thy people. When it says gods, does that mean the god Dagon of the Philistines? Thou shalt not revile the gods. Does that mean you should never say anything derogatory about Dagon of the Philistines? Or is it using gods here as a synonym of rulers? Yes. And it's used in other places like Psalm 82 and John chapter 10. Thou shalt not revile the gods. You will not use names or adjectives to defile or despise or to show disdain for someone in authority. And God calls civil rulers gods with a little g. That is serious business. When the great God with a capital G says, my administrators on earth in positions of civil government are gods with a little g, that should tell you a whole lot right there. Thou shalt not revile the gods. Thou shalt not speak derogatorily about our civil authorities. My father would not let us call a policeman a fuzz. Do you remember when a policeman was called a fuzz? He didn't even like us using the word cop. He was a policeman. We were to respect them. We were to honor them. We were to appreciate them. We were to be thankful for them. And I'm thankful for that influence. With the help of a couple of other members in here, we have a nice memorial on Roper Mountain Road for Marcus Whitfield, who lost his life a few years ago, defending our peace while we were lying in bed. He took on an angry mob and was chased out in the middle of Roper Mountain and was shot by a passing automobile one night at the Waffle House there on Roper Mountain Road. We went to county council. Do you remember that, Rebecca? Little secretary, how old were you, bud? Six? Eight? We went to county council and got a memorial there. You can drive and see it there at the corner of Roper Mountain Road and Woodruff Road. Because those policemen, while we're sleeping in bed, are out there risking their lives against an angry mob. I love that man. And I went to where his replacement was to tell him I loved him one night. And I hope that we think that way. The only reason I think that way is two, two counts. My father and the word of God. Right. It's wonderful to have policemen. Are there bad policemen once in a while? Yes, we deserve more of them. They're better than we deserve. They're usually so, so, so polite, so well-mannered, so disciplined. We as a nation deserve worse the way we treat them and the way we pay them. When the king in Cleveland can make $10 million a year and a policeman works for twenty-five or 30000 that's just plain irritating. Francis LeBron James, a basketball player in Cleveland. I'm not picking on you one bit. I'm just letting everybody else know. But I'm just using you because I know you dislike it. Not really. 
LeBron James, you know, where these, these athletes make $10 million a year, and there's policemen that have to work a, a real job 40, 50, 60 hours a week, 50 weeks out of the year to protect us. We want to honor them. We shouldn't mind paying our county taxes. I know, the money goes to other things, but we still shouldn't mind because the Lord tells us to pay tribute and custom to whom custom and tribute is due. These words are so powerful. Thou shalt not revile the gods, nor curse the ruler of thy people. When we detect in a man the spirit of rebellion against civil government, we have detected a fault in character that is very serious, in which men corrupt themselves, and according to Peter, are like a rabid dog made to be taken and destroyed. They are brute beasts, but they are incorrigible and untrainable brute beasts that are made to be taken and destroyed. That is not my language. That is the language of the Holy Ghost. Second Peter 2, 10 through 12. That is how serious it is. When you speak evil of dignities and you despise government, you do not know what you are talking about. First of all, because God set the office, the man, and his current status of how he's treating you. Second, you've never been in a position of authority like him, and you do not know what he's dealing with. Proverbs chapter 25 says, The the heaven for height and the sea for depth, but the heart of kings is unsearchable. You have no idea the hundred different things that he's working on to make one decision. Do you know how many of them you see? One. The one that affects you. That's all you see. And there's 99 that are bigger than that. And it causes him to make the judgment that he does. Will you follow me for a minute? And we're going to be done. Follow me for a minute. If you speak evil of dignities, and I'm speaking to my, I'm preaching to myself as well as you. If we speak evil of dignities or we despise government, and we do not submit to it, and we submit to it cheerfully, for wrath's sake, for conscience' sake, if we don't give honor, if we don't fulfill all that we've had read to us in this second assembly, then we are like incorrigible, unmanageable animals that should be taken out and shot. That's God's opinion of us. We want to recognize that God made the office the man in his current treatment of us, and we want to recognize the fact that he is dealing with things that we cannot see. For an example, Solomon. Since Solomon's the one that wrote Proverbs 25 and verse 3, that the heart of kings is unsearchable, let's look at his unsearchable heart. You are a reporter for Mad Magazine. You know, somewhere in between CNBC, I don't have to give them any respect, okay? They're not an authority. Right. You're a reporter for People Magazine, and you're in court. And Solomon is the Supreme Court of Israel. And there are two women there fighting over a baby. And you're speaking as the camera goes back and forth from you to Solomon. And Solomon says, bring me a sword. And what are you going to write? What are you going to write? What are you going to say? As the camera comes back to you, when Solomon says, let's get this over with, bring me a sword. We have the most cruel king. We have a king that would kill babies. We have a rotten king. Somebody impeach this man. Where's an assassin when we need one? The heart of kings is unsearchable. Right. He says, divide the baby in half and give half to each of them. That'll stop the fighting. 
Very quickly, he finds out who the real mother is, doesn't he? The heart of kings is unsearchable. That's because you were looking at it with the very narrow focus of a baby being cut in half. Solomon was so far beyond you that the two of you weren't in the same galaxy. And that's what we should remember about kings and somebody in authority. You say, well, the man I work for ain't no Solomon. I know that too. (laughs) He ain't no Solomon. I know that. But the Lord didn't give me a verse to tell you that when he ain't Solomon, then you don't have to submit. Because he's got other things going through his very small mind, like Solomon had things going through his big one. And we learn to submit. And this is what makes the world go round. You want utopia? It's not what Karl Marx dreamed up. It's what God wrote. Do you know what the Bible says in Deuteronomy 4, 6, 8, and 10? That the other nations of the world would look at the laws that Israel had and say, there is nobody on earth like Israel that is so close to God and has commandments so righteous and wise as all their precepts. Amen. And one of the rules is, a king's heart is unsearchable. You can't figure out why he made the decision he made. We have a president right now that we could make up excuses and def- We could defame him by some of the things we say about him, but he is making decisions with information we do not have access to. He has an agenda that we do not know about. You may think you know about it, but his agenda is God's agenda. He is going to accomplish God's agenda. And listen, so far it's been better than we deserve. It's been better than we deserve. Okay, let me give you another one about Solomon. Solomon is on his throne. His servants tell him that his mother wants to speak to him. His mother comes in. You should read it. I don't have, I'm just, do you know what he does? Solomon, on the deck. He did obeisance to his mother. And he had a chair arranged for her right at his side. He honored his mother. He was the king of Israel and he was one glorious king. But he got down on the deck to honor his mother. Couldn't he have just held out his scepter and had her kiss it? How about a ring on his foot? How about a ring on his hand? He got down the deck to his mother. I hope you're all affected like I am. We can do better about honoring our parents. We can get more and more like God's word. Mother, anything you want to half the kingdom... I want Abishag for Adonijah, your brother. Not a chance. Benaiah, go kill him. You're a reporter again. Solomon just promised his mother anything to half the kingdom. As soon as she asked for something as simple as Abishag, the little virgin girl that had stayed in bed with David to keep him warm, he said, no way, and he sent Benaiah, his chief of the captain of his host to go kill him. He made a promise and then he didn't keep it because the hearts of kings are unsearchable. Solomon knew about the danger of Adonijah getting any advantage to state secrets or influence in government because he had already been seditious once. And he said, mother, are you here to ask for my throne? That is my older brother. And he will take this throne. If, if we were to give him that privilege, This is all to be understood in reading the passage and knowing the history of Adonijah. But you, the little reporter with the the pea brain that graduated from a good university, you would be writing down that he was a liar. 
He was inconsistent. He didn't keep his promises, and he didn't keep his campaign promises. Because here was his campaign promise. Mother, anything you want to half your kingdom. Reality, no, I'm not going to do that. And then had the guy killed. Why did I go through those two illustrations and there's more in the Bible? Those two illustrations that remind you that there's two reasons we serve. There's really three, but two go together. First of all, God made the office, the man in the office, and what he's presently doing. He also has responsibilities and is thinking about things that you don't know about. Children, your parents have worries about you that you cannot fully comprehend yet. When you're 30 or 40 and you have older children, then you'll understand what it took to be your parent. Until then, you don't fully understand. That's the same principle that's involved. A boss has more going through his head. You do not know what pressure he's operating under. He, have been, he may have been told by his boss that he has to do certain things a certain way. He may have been told that he has to meet such and such a budget, which puts a constraint on him so that he can't do what you want him to do. All of this brings us back to, are we going to despise dominion? Are we going to speak evil of dignities? We're going to obey, and we're going to obey well, and we're going to obey very well. It's New Testament doctrine. Right. We, we learned today that we ought to keep the first day of the week. But is there more evidence in the New Testament for the first day of the week worship or for obeying civil government and all the other spheres of authority? Tell me by the weight of the number of verses. There is much more for obeying authority. Where Christianity hits the road, it's easy to get in our cars and drive to church on Sunday. It's harder to watch the news or read something or run into a boss or have a, have a, a forward husband or a forward boss and submit and speak cheerfully and think honorably in your heart about them. We start in our heart. It comes to our lips and puts legs to our actions that we honor those in authority over us. We do not despise them. And the passage goes on to say that even Michael the archangel would not despise the devil himself when he was in a fight for an important matter, and that was the body of Moses. He simply turned it over to the Lord by saying, The Lord rebuke thee. The devil, I mean, Michael the archangel would not defy the devil or bring a railing accusation against him. And Second Peter 2 is even better. The angels do not bring railing accusations against human rulers. Because they understand authority. May we understand authority. It all comes from God. We worship God by obeying civil government and the other spheres of authority. When we reject them, what did the Lord say in 1 Samuel 8? Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. May the Lord bless us to be the most faithful citizens of this nation, the best workers on the job, the best wives, the best children, the best church members. May we all together understand and respect God's fears of authority and obey them fully. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.